My name's Mike McNichols, and uh, it's my privilege to be with you this morning. Just last March, it was reported to some law enforcement officials in Northern California, in Tulare County, that people had been receiving phone calls from solicitors claiming that people who didn't belong to their church were destined to go straight to hell. And the calls came, of course, from a Southern California area code, as it would. Now, the callers demanded $100 to join the church and then $100 every month thereafter in order to follow Christ in the right way. And so the police put out a public bulletin that very wisely counseled people not to fall for it, as if they even had to say that. Well, it seems like there's always somebody trying to sell the people of God a bill of goods. There's always someone trying to scam them in such a way that they look for hope and meaning and ultimate purpose in something other than the creator, redeemer, God, who has ultimately revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And our biblical history is just full of these kinds of stories, from Israel's desire to be strong and powerful like the surrounding idol-worshiping nations, right up into the New Testament to the false teachers that were trying to convince people that things like religious legalism or, or the denial of Jesus' death and resurrection were really much better stories to embrace than the one attested to by people like the Apostle John. For some, it appears the story of God's great mission in the world just isn't enough. It's interesting to listen to the texts that were read this morning. One from the first epistle of John, the first letter of John, and the second from the gospel of John. Now, most scholars would agree that both were written by the, the same author, and so the apparently contrasting views about our relationship to the world sort of jumps out at us. In, in the gospel reading, Jesus prays that his followers who are in the world will be kept safe, that, that they will be protected. And as you might recall, way back in John chapter 3, Jesus states that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And yet in the letter that we call 1 John, the readers are warned not to love the world or the things of the world. But John really clarifies what he's talking about when he says, for all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride in riches, the pride in life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. See, the, the world is the context that we all live in. The world is also the focus of God's love. It's not really the world per se that's the problem. It's the desires emerging from a world that has lost its way, a world whose first love is not God. And losing the way is way too often a problem for Jesus' followers as well. Many years ago, the church tribe that was uh, my home became enamored by an apparently wealthy man who knew how to make money, as he said, for the glory of God. He claimed that faith and prosperity were inseparable from each other and that he was living proof of that reality. 
He would say that his annual tithe alone surpassed the annual income of the average American family. That's how much God had blessed him, he said. He also claimed to be able to get a higher return on investment than anybody else in the whole world. And the people in our denomination got very, very excited about him. They also handed him a whole lot of money to invest on their behalf. And of course, it was another scam. The people lost all of their money. The man was convicted on a number of charges, and he was sent to prison for a while. And when he got out of prison, he immediately traveled just 50 miles from his original target and did it all over again, right here in Orange County. It was a new denominational family, but once again, they trusted him. They gave him a whole bunch of money, and they lost it all. They were buying what he was selling, and then in the end, it was their desires that carried them away. It's absolutely amazing how our desires can be redirected. In our Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see a common theme, and it's the coming of God's kingdom, the inbreaking of God's kingdom. We hear Jesus say that the kingdom of God is near, that it is at hand, it is upon us. He preached about the kingdom, and over time, his followers preached the kingdom by preaching about Jesus. Jesus claimed that, that the kingdom was at hand, that God was king. And his followers expressed that message in the words, Jesus is Lord. And that's what we see in John's writings, what scholars would call a, a high Christology, a lifting up of Christ, a focus on the word made flesh who summons people to come to know God, thereby inheriting life unto the ages eternal life. And as one who wrote later than the other authors, John just seems to assume the reality of God's kingdom in his focus on Jesus. And what John seems to be describing in his letter, his epistle, is the tension that people were experiencing living between the time of Jesus coming on earth and the time when he will return, when God's kingdom would come in its fullness. It's a time of hope, but it's also a time of longing, a time of desire. It's a time where we, along with everybody else, recognize that something is still wrong with the world, and we long for things to be put right. It's a time of desire. And John shows how desire can be misdirected. When people seek to satisfy that desire through the creation, through the world, rather than through the creator, God, then they get what they pay for, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in life, or in contemporary terms, sex, power, and money. Real-life scandals, crime dramas, binge-worthy TV series seem to focus on one of those desires. And I think that those things capture our attention because they're really more than just entertainment for us. They, they touch on our built-in sense of longing and how our desires, even when misdirected, seek to satisfy that longing. And John seems to be deeply concerned about this. So much so that, that he warns his friends that false teachers will keep coming at them with quick-fix remedies to their longings that have nothing to do with God's kingdom, nothing to do with the lordship of Jesus. And then 
John brings up a very scary name, Antichrist. Now, John reminds his readers that they indeed have heard about Antichrist. Who knows what they had heard? Who knows what they feared in this person? Was it someone like the crazy and and murderous Emperor Nero, perhaps? Uh, in, In our time, we certainly have enough popular literature that warns us about such a person. And there's always a new prediction about the Antichrist's identity. Throughout history, Protestants and even some Catholics have pointed at one pope after another, identifying each of them as the Antichrist. Most U.S. presidents since World War II have been granted that title. I mean, all kinds of people have been cast into that role, only to fade off, ultimately, into the timeline of history. But John kind of shakes up our popular thinking on this topic by claiming that really many of them have come. Many antichrists have come, and they have gone, and they will continue to do so. They are the ones who are anti-Jesus the Christ, the ones who are against Christ, those standing in opposition to Christ. They were, at one time, he says, part of the family. They were internal folks. They were part of the family of faith. But then they took off, all the while trying to convince people that Jesus was not who he said he was. Jesus was not the Messiah, the Christ. He was not the Lord. And in doing so, John says, they didn't just deny him. They denied God the Father all at the same time. And in denying Jesus, these false teachers would seek to redirect the desires of the people. Because if Jesus is not Lord, then pinning your hopes on him is just a big waste of time, really. There are other and better mechanisms for hope, like the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, pride in life. You know, one of the most disturbing things that I see in the Bible is how often God gives people what they desire. When the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament anoints young Saul to be king over Israel, a a process that God did not initiate, but at the end facilitated, Samuel warns the people that the granting of their demand to have an earthly king was, in fact, a rejection of the God who had rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. And their response, having heard this warning from the great prophet Samuel, was to turn their faces to Saul and shout, long live the king. And this scenario is repeated over and over throughout Israel's history, even up to the time when the crowds called for Jesus' crucifixion and the release of Barabbas. The one who seems to capture this best is the psalmist, as it's rendered in the Book of Common Prayer, Psalm 106, as uh, the history of Israel is recounted at length. And then it says, A craving seized them in the wilderness, and they put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked and sent leanness into their soul. I think it's safe to assume that a skinny, bony soul is just not a good thing. You know, most human societies have views about what it means to be human and how people ought to live in the world. But regardless of the diversity of those views all over planet Earth, most people would agree ultimately that things are just not right with the world. There's there's just something wrong out there. 
There are these ongoing problems that vex us from, from the horrors of systemic evil to the struggles of everyday human life. There's a lot of things that people can disagree about, but nobody out there that I know of is claiming that everything is just great out there. Something is just not right. So really the big question is, what's the solution to that problem? And that's where things get really difficult. I had a professor in college who used to joke that he worried about the really big things in life while his wife just worried about the little things. He worried about the really big things like the economy and war and the environment and politics. But his wife just worried about the little things like what they were going to eat, where they were going to live, where the kids were going to go to school. He was being ironic, of course, and he says, I focus on the global, she focuses on the local. He liked to focus on things he had absolutely no influence over whatsoever, but he really liked to eat and have a place to live, and it's good that the kids go to school. Well, that's where most of us live. We live in the local, don't we? I mean, we're aware of all these global challenges, national issues, and so on, but it's the local stuff that really gets to us. And it's that way with our faith, I think. We, we can talk all day long about really big issues of theology and the nature of knowledge and truth, but in the end, we really want to be confident that our faith is centered in something that is authentic, something that is real. And we want to know that our story is worth living in. Now, on a local level, John's readers were being told that something was not right with their story about Jesus in the first place. These false teachers were very happy to deconstruct what the people had been taught, but they didn't offer any viable alternatives. And that's where John jumps in. He reminds them of two very important things. First, they've already been taught about Jesus. He reminds them of that. They've been taught things that, that precede this, this influence and this invasion by these false teachers. They had been taught by people like John, who had been there with Jesus. They heard this firsthand testimony about all that Jesus did. They heard about who Jesus was. It was important for them to remember that, John tells them. The second thing is that the people, as John says, were anointed by the Holy One. Their lives had been touched. Their lives had been transformed by the very Spirit of God. They had been changed at a, at a fundamental level. They were not just carriers of religious information. They were the ones whose lives now glistened with the oil of God's anointing. Well, instead of just chasing after in his entire letter these false teachers who sought to redirect the people's desires away from Jesus, John instead calls the people to recognize and embrace the riches that have already been granted to them. And he offers them really the solution to the problems that they've been facing. He calls them to remain, to live, to abide. In our text in 1 John, he uses that word abide six times in that one section. He speaks of letting their knowledge about Jesus to remain, to abide in them. He reminds them that the anointing they receive from God lives in them, it abides in them. John tells them that they will live, they will abide in the life that is shared 
with God the Father and Jesus the Son, a life that is eternal. To remain, to live, to abide is not only the solution to their problems, it is the proper directing of their desires. You know, I'm guessing that most of us get how easy it is for our desires to be redirected to all kinds of places. Short stroll through Fashion Island or South Coast Plaza can awaken desires we didn't even know that we had. I have shirts in my closet that I didn't know I needed until I walked into the mall. Being captured by that picture in places like Abercrombie and Fitch that told me if I just bought this shirt, I would look younger, stronger, healthier. They lie, and I have all the shirts. Well, our anxieties can be ramped up very, very quickly by all kinds of voices that shout to us about what it takes to live the good life. And we know, we know that we are vulnerable to the redirection of our desires. But, but I'm hoping that in considering this today that our hearts leap just a bit when we think about the possibility of living in, of abiding in all that God has granted to us and is granting to us. A few years ago, a young lady lived with uh, Emily and me for a year as she started college. And she was a part of a church that hosted a couple of retreats every year. And it was for the high school and college age kids. And she told us that they would alternate from retreat to, to, to retreat the way that they would participate. One part of the group would serve it, as she called it, caring for the others. They would do the work. They would dish out the food. They would clean things up. They would create the environment for those who would come as guests. But at the next retreat, they would then take their turn to be the guests. And they called that part of the experience living it. Well, maybe that's how we abide. We live it. We, we rest in the living we rest in the riches of the story of the ages that has been granted to us. We live in the gift that is the anointing of God, the presence and indwelling of his spirit. We live it. And in that living, our desires are directed toward the God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus. I think that Father Richard John Newhouse has said it quite well. In this life, and in the world to come, those who follow Jesus will receive everything they want if what they want is to follow Jesus. Amen.